Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been in this now for a couple weeks. This is a really, really, really dense section of Scripture, and so I would love for you to, to turn with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. Again, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 34 is where we're going to be today. Again, like last week, I told you this is going to be one of those weeks where it's going to be really dense, and we're having to understand a lot of what, what God has inspired the Apostle Paul to write and to talk about. We're trying to understand how resurrection plays out in our lives and the point of it today. What, what implications there are. We talked a couple weeks ago saying that there's, there's not only past implications of the gospel, there's present implications and there's future ones, which is in the resurrection. Last week, we talked about the issues of not believing in the resurrection. And as we've been digging through this and kind of working our ways through, again, I, I apologize. There's just a lot of just thick, thick things, that these implications that we have to understand to really get to the idea of what he's building to, which is verse 58 which is talking about that their labor is not in vain, that there's, there's a reason to keep working hard today in spite of the fact that, that we don't understand or, or what it may mean in the future. There's things that we're supposed to do today, but it's all building up to that application that, that ultimately Jesus, where we were last week, is the first fruits of this resurrection. If we are to be like Christ, then at Jesus as the first fruit is ultimately, he's the one that's resurrected into bodily form, a bodily resurrection, that then we as his followers are the harvest, the promised harvest that comes after the first fruits. Again, it's very, very important for us to understand. We established last week that, that it's not just, the end isn't just some heaven up in the, in the sky. It's, it's a new heavens and a new earth, and there's a bodily resurrection. This is, this is kind of what he's building to, and this is the, the text of where we are today. Again, it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 34 is where we will be. I'm going to read back one verse just because, again, we need to be reminded. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. There were those in Corinth and those around. They believed in life after death, but they did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They didn't understand this idea of a physical life. A, they, they saw heavens as kind of an escape. And again, you'll have to go back and listen to last week to, to catch yourself up there. But instead of seeing it as there are actual a new heavens and a new earth here for us in bodily form that's supposed to be there. So verse 24 picks up. It says, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain. I love that. It's plain. Like, it totally makes sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's really complex. Okay. It is plain he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And so we're going to pause here. There's, there's something that's really, really beautiful going on here that is really, really kind of dense. So I'm just going to ask you to kind of really focus in because I promise we'll land this with a little bit of application for you, those, for you pragmatic people here. They're like, I need something to, to walk with here. In verse 24, he says, then comes the end. Now end in regards, he's saying, look, 
resurrected bodies, then the end comes. So when Jesus comes back, it can also be the in completion, not just end as if something's going, but this time period has completed. He says, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, you know, out of the clouds, comes down, you know, doesn't show up as a baby, kind of infant, needing to be cared for. He comes back as a king, as a warrior, coming in places. He's going to destroy all things. That word destroy can also mean dethrone. And if you think about it, when we've talked about the kingdom of God being here, but not yet, this is what Jesus is ushering in, his kingdom, the kingdom where God is ruler. He reigns, he's on the throne. There is no other authority. He will come in and overthrow and destroy, dethrone every other kingdom, everyone. The, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of, of man. He will, he will do away with the political campaign's kingdoms. He will do away with everything. And ultimately, he will come down and say, this is my kingdom. I'm establishing it, and I will destroy everything. And the last thing in verse 26, he says he will just defeat, is death. He says, look, I will, I will destroy death. The reason why he says that is, as those of us that are here today, we've walked this earth. We follow the Lord. We submit it to him. We still die. We still physically die. To say that death is anything other than the enemy is to deny the goodness, beauty, and power of God's good creation. And the point of resurrection is that it is, it is the, the defeat of death. Jesus resurrecting, coming out of the tomb, defeats death once and for all. And so as the kind of then, as he ushers in, he's going to destroy all things. This is why it's extremely important, extremely important. Hear me on this. Extremely important to be careful about who and what we align ourselves to in this world. Because if you are a child of God, you are not of a specific party or any other thing. You are a child of the king, the most high king, God, who is going to dethrone all other kingdoms. Not saying we can't work with and have fun and, and, and even vote in specific ways, but we have to be really clear and think. We do not align ourselves. We do not, we do not put our, our allegiance to anything other than Christ. And everything else then has to follow through that lens. Because ultimately, it's his kingdom. It's who he is. It's what he's doing. He says, look, Jesus is going to destroy all things through resurrection. At the time of our bodily resurrection, which we will talk about in a couple weeks, about bodily resurrection, what our body looks like. It goes on and says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, what God is doing in this text of the Apostle Paul is just brilliant. Just incredibly brilliant. So stay with me. He quotes two psalms. Two specific psalms written by author, um, inspired by David. He wrote them in there. And he, the first one here is, is Psalm 110. It's verses one through seven. It's a, it's a messianic psalm, meaning it speaks of the Messiah, God's future king. This is something that every single Jew knew about. This is when Jesus was talking about the kingdom at hand is near. This is what most of the disciples and the Jews, anyone that was raised and understood the, the history, this is what they pictured, Psalm one. 10. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, it's important we have to establish something here. There's, if you're text, you notice how Lord on the first one is all capitalized, and the second one's not. The first one is, is his name. The Lord Yahweh is my Lord Adonai, or King. It's important that we see that. So God is also my King. Creator, King. He goes on, says, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, this is Yahweh to the Messiah, make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion or Jerusalem, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Messiah, you will have an army of people. 
to come and rule. You'll have an army of people to come and rule. This is what he's saying here. He goes on, says, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of the Messiah, are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we have to go back to Hebrews to do that. I don't have time, but it's really, really intriguing. It's important for us to recognize that, that the Messiah is not only king, but he is also priest. He holds both those things, only in the Messiah, okay? Just have fun with that. Go back to Hebrews. We talked about that a whole lot. It says, is at your right hand, the Lord, um, your, your Messiah are a priest and king forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, Adonai, the king, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment. Now, anytime you see, the reason why that word's kind of highlighted, I need you guys to just kind of take, take note of that word judgment. Anytime you see judgment in scripture, it means to put the world back in the way it was supposed to be, back in the order, to put the people, to sift them out, to put the, the good and the evil, to separate those things, to put it the way it was intended. So the king he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with, with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is all about Jesus. Psalm 110 is speaking about Jesus. This is why when we look and we read the gospels, like how in the world did the disciples miss the fact that Jesus was gonna die and resurrect. How did they miss this? Because in their mind, they would read this and see this and understand and hear this and understanding that they were being occupied by Rome. And they were expecting the Messiah to come clothed in a white robe with a sword, come down and destroy dominions and kingdoms and all those other things because Jesus said, what did he say over and over again? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's present. It's now. So they, they missed this. Now what the apostle Paul, inspired by God, is doing is he's pointing to the fact that this is going to happen, not when Jesus first came and inaugurated the kingdom, but when he comes a second time to fully complete and throw everything off. And so what he's doing is he's going back to a messianic, uh, uh, messianic psalm, and he's speaking about the Messiah, and he's saying, this is what's going to happen. The disciples missed it. Everyone missed it. Jesus said it over and over again. Again, kingdom is a lot like heaven. When we think of the word heaven, like we talked about last week, it's, it's under God's reign. It's fully under God's reign. When Jesus comes back, there will be nothing that can like withstand him. There's not gonna be anyone that's like, oh, I can hold out for a little bit. No, he will destroy all things. This is why it's important for us to remember which kingdom we are a part of, what the purpose of our life is. If you have been, if you've been grafted into the kingdom of God through submitting yourself to Jesus Christ, you are a part of, of his reign, his heavenly kingdom that is here, but not yet completed until he shows up. This is why most of the people missed Jesus as the disciples because they expected him to come with a sword, not as a baby. Okay, moving on. The next thing he says in here, he goes on in 24, he says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy is the destroyed his death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Now what God does in this text is really, really kind of mind-blowing. And this is important because, again, he's trying to combat to all the people that don't believe in a bodily resurrection. 
He's been establishing all last week, all the issues. If we don't believe in the body resurrection, this is pointless. This is pointless. This is poison. This is just kind of a continuation of it, except for now he's taking them into the scriptures and helping them see how God has fulfilled his prophecy in it. So he goes to Psalm 8. So I will read this one for you. Psalm 8, 1, 1 through 9. Our Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, the, the Yahweh King, again. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, we talked about this last week. This word heavens is the idea of cosmos that's used here. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the cosmo, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is Adam? What is human? We have to establish this. What is human? David's writing this again. What is human that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, Jesus, remember how Jesus relates to himself always? What does he call himself over and over and over again in the New Testament, in the Gospels? The son of man. The son of man. Goes on and says that you care for him. Yet you have made him, speaking of man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what does this have to do with Corinthians? Again, by inspired by God, what the Apostle Paul does here is brilliant. He takes a psalm. He quotes about the Messianic psalm, which we knew, in David, speaking in Psalm 110. And then he comes to Psalm 8, which is speaking about who? Who is, who is the person that has rulership here? I'm not, it, Jesus is one, but, but he's actually speaking about someone else. It, what is it? It's human, man. This is, man, now he's going back to the garden, chapter 126 of Genesis. What does he do? He says, let us make man in our image, Imago Dei, in the image of God, in the very next word, so that he can rule over the earth. What was intended to happen from the very beginning of the garden is accomplished in Jesus. And what God does through this text is just so amazing. He takes a psalm that was meant to intended, was speaking of what the purpose of man was doing, and says, look, the son of man, a perfect, fully human man, Jesus Christ, has achieved what was intended to happen all along for us. He lived the perfect life. He was sinless, and he can, with all authority, rule over the earth he applies what is meant to be to the creation and he applies it to Jesus as the Messiah by putting it with both Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. And basically what he's saying is not only the Messiah, but he also completes and fulfills what we were intended to do all along, which is why the resurrection is necessary. We were intended to rule, but we messed that up. How are we doing in ruling the earth? Is there just peace and love and joy? I mean, like, is God just awesome and in full control of everything in this world? No. We have failed miserably at that. We are not leading the way that God intended us. We have not, we have not put, he has not put everything under our subjection because unfortunately the way that we do it is wrong. But what Jesus did in coming as a man, not just God. Again, he is, he's, he's saying things that years before they ever have the language of Trinity. 
It's talking about how God is fully God. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And by being fully man, Psalm 8 now applies to Jesus, the son of man, who through resurrection has put everything back in order. Guys, it is brilliant what he does here. The ramifications are insane. If this is the way it is, and this means, this is, this is like, the, like the kind of the linchpin, the, the nail in the coffin that resurrection has to happen. We can't deny resurrection. We can't just say death and burial. We have to go to resurrection. He must reign reflects both the you crowned him and made him ruler that we see from Psalm 8. And, and sit at my right hand is Psalm 110. Paul's reference to all his enemies reflects a conflation of all things from Psalm 8. And your enemies from Psalm 110. The reference to reigning until his enemies have been subdued comes from Psalm 110. And Psalm 8 contributes, put all under his feet. Both Psalm 110 and 8 mention the king's feet. God brilliantly speaks of Jesus in place of us. He's the first fruits. He, He does it in place of us. God's original intent was for humans to live under God's rule and to rule over the earth. It took about two chapters and we messed that one up. And like we talked about last week, the first Adam, all have died and sinned because we are of Adam. The second Adam in Jesus, who is fully man, lives the life that the first Adam was intended to do so that those of us who submit to him can now usher in and be resurrected in a bodily form, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, in the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth where God is, is, is authority over everything. There are no other kingdoms. Not even death can be in this kingdom. He, he puts these two Psalms in place and says, this is why the resurrection is important because if it's not, he's not the Messiah. He's just another prophet that died. And like we established last week, if he doesn't raise from the dead, there's a whole lot of other things that go awry if that's not true. This is what he's doing. He's saying, look, we, we see the beginning that man was meant to do this, but we failed. And Psalm 8 is about humans reigning. Psalm 110 is about the Messiah reign. And both were used to speak the Messiah here in Corinthians. So it's no longer just us trying to do this. Psalm 8 now can be applied to the Messiah. And in that truth, we can go, okay, awesome. And he goes on and says, now be subject. He goes in this whole section about, okay, so that once Jesus does this, he's going to put this in place and and things are going to happen. Then he has to need to submit himself back to God. It's not that he's operating out of God's submission. This is kind of the Near East thinking about a king and their reign. They would send out a general or people that would have their rule and they would go and they would they would conquer somewhere and then they'd come back and come back underneath the king because the king is above elevated that's why it's always at the feet and this is the idea he's saying look jesus is going to operate on the authority of god he's not less than god he's fully god we've already established that through many other scriptures but he's saying he's he's operating like a general would he's going to go and he's going to establish the kingdom under the authority of god and he's going he's gonna to take place. And people are going to see, when they see him, they're going to see God. And this is all going to be put in place under God's rule. Jesus is the living God, but yes, he is fully man. Jesus restores God's original plan. He lives under the authority of God and rules over the world as a human. In Jesus, it's God saving the world. Everything's in subjection. Psalm 8, one scholar said it this way. It says, Psalm 8 talks about human beings, 
this role of being under God and over the world is not just the task of the Messiah. It's what God had in mind from the very start when he created humans in his own image. This is how Paul ties the passage tightly together in the achievement of the Messiah and the present reign in which he is bringing the world back to order is the fulfillment of what God intended humans to do. The story of Genesis is completed by the story told in the Psalms. He's saying, look, Jesus is submitted. The, the theological term is kind of functional subordination. It's where Jesus and God are equal to both God, but yet Jesus functionally subordinates himself. He submits himself to God's will. We see this in the garden. Never, not my will be done, but yours, this submission. I can do nothing except for the Father's will. It's a, an operation of functional submission. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And he's saying, look, this has happened so that not so God could just scrap everything and say, okay, let's just go to some ethereal heaven out of the middle of nowhere. He's saying, no, so he can get it back to the way it was. Why? Because what he created was good. And he wants his good children that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ to reign, to rule over it, to build houses and to do those things like we talked about last week out of Isaiah. Now that that's clear as mud, let's move on. Okay, so verse 29, here's the, one of the most difficult scriptures to understand in general through the scriptures. So let's just go ahead and skip that one. Let's read 30. Actually, I'll, okay, 30, 29 says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Okay, so he goes back into, after this massive theological kind of plant into the scriptures out of Psalm, saying this is what resurrection means. This is who Jesus is. This is why it's important that we see that we come out in bodily form. And he comes back into this argument of why is the resurrection important and what are you guys doing and what makes sense or doesn't make sense of this? And he goes on and talks about baptism. Now, this verse is really, really, really hard to define as to why it says it the way it is. And it's really specific at the end of verse 29. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized? And then the on behalf, this word right here gets translated a number of different ways, on behalf, for, or in view of. And whichever way you define it ultimately will establish what this means on this whole baptizing of the dead. Now, there were some pagan cultures that were taking someone who is dead and baptizing them and in their name saying, I'm gonna baptize you and somehow that would help them. We know that, that Mormonism teaches this as well today. The, the things that we know out of the scriptures, first off, we're not really sure what the context is for this or what he's trying to establish in this. I have an idea and I'll get there in a second, but we do know for a fact what it's not saying because of other scriptures. So I want to just real quickly kind of lean into this. What it's not saying is this idea that, that I can go and, and, and get baptized for my grandma who passed away and there will be some kind of salvation or something that will come out of that. Because that is, there's about three problems that are really obvious in scripture with that the biggest one that's really really obvious is that jesus teaches it's by faith you were saved not a works of hand or anything else so so it's not a matter of me doing it for someone else that can happen so baptism does not save you baptism is an act of obedience that comes through that that's the first problem the second problem is in early first century church they took this scripture and started baptizing for dead they actually did that and they were they were deemed as heretics you can see some of the old church fathers in the first century, they were calling them heretics and they did not know what they were teaching. The third reason, and this is one that I think is pretty obvious when you look at scripture, 
If this was a practice that he's trying to endorse, saying that this is supposed to happen, why is the church in Corinth, by the way, the church that messed up almost every other aspect of, of, of order, why are they the only examples of this, if this was the case? A church that literally was getting drunk during communion, that was having a, a, a guy sleeping with his stepmother in the church and, and, and gathering with them. Like, they were a mess as a church. If this was really something that God's word was trying to endorse, it wouldn't really make sense to have it only here in Corinth. Those are three of the many, many other reasons why it doesn't make sense to do it for someone who's dead. Now, why does he put it here? I, I think if you go in the context again, I can't define whether it's behalf of or in lieu of. There's some that would say that, that people would look at it in the sense when they say behalf, meaning they look at those people that went ahead of them. The dead that went ahead of them that followed in their faith was a, a reason for those today, for the generations behind them to be baptized because of what they saw in them. Sure, that works. It makes sense. I'm not gonna be extremely dogmatic on that. But one thing that, that we can say for sure is what is the picture over and over and over again of baptism? You are, you are what? Into the likeness of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, just, let's just see this out. If we do the next time we do a baptism and I stop at burial, how's that gonna go for that person? Right? If there is no resurrection, why are we doing baptism? What's the whole point of, of being, being baptized into the likeness of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection like Romans 6 says? Why, why do it? In fact, Christianity or some people that are submitted to the Lord would, would end on baptism. Well, I'm going to be baptized, I believe. See you later because I ain't coming out of the tomb. That's why it doesn't make sense. I think he's making a picture. He's saying, look, even if they're wrong in what they're doing, even if they're doing it for this reason, if they don't believe in resurrection, why do baptism? And all of the people in Corinth were doing baptism. Whether they believed in resurrection or not, they were, they were taking part in baptism. We saw that all the way back at the beginning where the Apostle Paul says, look, I didn't baptize certain of you because I didn't want you to, to think that you were better than someone else baptizing you. So baptism is happening. He's like, well, what's the point of baptism? If there is no resurrection, it's literally death and drowned. Have fun. See you later. But no, it's not. It's, there's, there's more to this. And so I think that's what he's getting at when he brings this subject up. Again, there's a lot of other things that you can dig into there, but that's what I think he's bringing up. And then he goes on, in light of this idea of, of baptism, he talks about this, this next section. He says, well, then why, well, if that's the case, then why did I, why did I experience all these animals? Why am, I, why am I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, what do I have to gain if this is the case? Again, I think he's making another point of if life is it here, if we just live and we die, What's the point of living so painfully? If you read Acts 19, you can see what happens with the Apostle Paul in Ephesus where he's writing this letter at the time. It's not easy for him. In Ephesus, there was also a Colosseum and gladiators and that stuff was happening. And so really what we see, and you even see in Daniel 7, the idea of fighting beasts as a metaphor speaking of pagan gods or, or lords or kings. And so I think what he's doing here is he's saying, look, I, like, life is hard. Daily I'm dying to myself, daily, which is, by the way, what Jesus says, if you want to follow him, take up your cross and die to yourself daily. But he says, why would, if the resurrection isn't there, why would I sub, sub, submit myself to this process? Why would, I, why would I let myself go here? Why would I be experiencing all of these hardships if the resurrection isn't real? Listen to this. This is important because this shows us that there are present day implications when we understand the resurrection correctly. He's saying, the, the, the life I live, what do I have to gain if I just die? 
and you just die. What's the point? No, he says, I glory in the fact that that's not the case. I glory in the fact that you people that I'm writing to are followers of Jesus despite you're messed up and you got your theology a little wrong. I glory in the fact that that's the case. But then he goes on and says, after this, 32b, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Wow, thanks, Paul. Okay, let's move on. No, he's quoting something that's very, very, very common here. This is, a, this is an Epicurean philosopher's statement. Eat, drink, and be merry. It was, it was actually not spoken of in a drunkenness or a horrible way. The Epicureans were people that did not believe in life after death. This is a philosophy that's just rampant in, in Corinth. Again, remember, Greek philosophy is just all over. Plato's understanding of, of heaven was, was seeping its way into this church, and that's why they missed the resurrection. They were kind of stuck in this. And these people, what they believed in was the good life. The good life. If, if Hey, if to die, today we, we live, tomorrow we die, well, then live it up. And not like gluttony and drunkenness, but they would say, no, like, like fine eating and, and ex- expensive jewelry and, and wonderful perfume. And they, they spent their life trying to have the most comfortable and beautiful and profound way of living. So he could be speaking it and saying it there because that was true. We also see in Isaiah 22, that is not spoken of as well. <laughs> the eat, drink, and, and be merry is, is, is the gluttony and the drunkenness and the giving yourselves to a sinful way. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, there is no resurrection. Might as well live like an Epicurean. There's no reason, there's no reason to, to, to endure the hardships, to fight the beasts, to, to continue to stand firm in faith. You might as well just give yourself, why fight the battle? Modern day, why not just give in to the computer screen? Why not just give in to the, the rhetoric that's on, on Facebook? Why not just live how we want to? Why not just live for ourselves? Let's, let's make all the money we can and let's spend it on ourselves. Let's do it for ourselves. This is what he's pushing against. He's saying that if there is no resurrection, man, you might as well just live it up. Enjoy. Be merry. Have fun. If tomorrow we die, don't worry about it. Just, just give yourself to everything. Man, work really hard and save a lot so you can just live the last 20 years of your life completely unhindered by any difficulty. Just, 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 I mean, just store and store and store and just live selfishly, selfishly, selfishly. Maybe give a little bit here or there to kind of appease your soul because you believe in this whole heaven idea, but you don't really believe in resurrection. And so that's what he's pushing on. He's saying, well, they live like the Epicureans. If that's really how you want to do it, then just, just go ahead because tomorrow you die. And he goes on. It doesn't let us stay there very long, unfortunately, right? We have to live this hard life. He goes on and says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, what he's doing here is, I think, a bit of a slam in the face to the Corinthian people because he quotes an actual playwright. This is Menander. This is out of a playwright that was in the kind of the 300 BC. This is a very famous playwright, poem writer. He, he had all kinds of different things. And this is a quote directly from him. He says, hey, hey, b- bad company, bad company. It's, it's, this is, it will ruin good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, what is he doing here is, is he's basically using Greek philosophy to push on the people in Corinth who were being heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. 
He's, always, he's just kind of, he's going to push him. Like, if you're, going to, if you're going to keep believing what Plato believes about the new heavens, and you're, going to, you're going to go this way, then I'm going to go ahead and just use what is, you understand. And every single person heard this. Now, there is a whole lot of truth to this. Parents in here, if you have kids, you've seen this. If you were a kid at once, which I think is most of us, you understand what this is like. If you've ever been in a relationship that isn't one that God would see as, as, as beautiful, where two people are submitted to him and living in, in, under his authority, you understand that rarely does the, does the one that wants to honor God win out over the one that doesn't. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of things that we don't have time to unpack. But he basically pushes on them and says, look, if you, if you guys don't realize this, is that you're being heavily influenced by the culture around you. And you're writing your theology based on that. And there are massive implications today if this happens. Massive things. And he says, I want you guys to stop sinning. Go and sin no more. Go on. Do not go on sinning. Jesus said this over and over and over again in the Gospels. And he ends with, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Chapter 4 talks about shame meaning that there's, there's two versions of shame that show up in Corinthians. There's a shame that we all understand that's like embarrassing and convicting and all those other things. But a lot of times the way that he uses shame is, is kind of a um, meant to tor- turn you towards your confusion. So it's this idea of like, hey, I'm going to say this not to, to embarrass you, but I'm going to say this literally to give you to your confusion. Just go ahead and go. I say this to your shame in this way. This one is, is the first. It's the harsh one. He says, look, if you don't believe, you have no knowledge which the Corinthians were, if you remember back, were puffed up because of what? Knowledge. He says, your knowledge is wrong. Jesus says the same thing. He says, look, some of you are gonna, on that day, did I not do these things in your name? He says, I never, depart from me, I never knew you. If we go back to Psalm 110, and we see that judgment is coming, and Jesus is the judge, then we live a life either true to the fact that our Messiah has come and he's coming again and we will be judged or we just eat, be merry and drink and and just live and and die as we will and, and just hope for the best. If there are kingdoms today and his kingdom has been the point of all of this, then the do's and don'ts, we've been saying this over and over again in Corinthians, the massive list of don't do this, don't be sexually immoral, don't be drunk, all those don'ts and do's, it's not a list of don'ts and do's, it's a list of what it means to live true to someone who is submitted to his reign in his kingdom today. We can live today as a part of his kingdom because we have the spirit of God that enables us to walk in truthfulness and grace. We can live in light of that. Hear me on this, okay? This is very important. If the resurrection is true, if it doesn't end at death and burial in some ethereal kind of heavens that we go elsewhere, then, then there has to be something about, like we said last week, about how we live today in light of the fact that the kingdom is here, but not yet completed. 2 Corinthians 5 says this. He says, For we must all appear before what? Before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You, me, every single one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear there so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Why in the body? Well, because the body is being resurrected, whether good or evil. This is an incredibly scary verse depending upon which side of the judgment you're in, right? 
This is one of those verses that, that brings hope if you are surrendered to Jesus Christ because you know that ultimately you've been clothed in his righteousness. That you're not, that the wrath of God that's due to the sins is no longer over us. Jesus paid for that on the cross. And in his burial and resurrection, he showed us that we can live and walk and, and be for him. But if you're not on the right side of that, judgment's really, really scary. But whatever you believe, Psalm 110 and many other points in scripture point to the fact that every knee will bow. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Every kingdom will fall to Jesus because God is establishing what is good, what he intended all along to bring before us. Live in light of the fact that this is who we are in the resurrection. What this means is train. Make it your life's purpose to live on point, to arrive at the judgment seat and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If there's anything you value in life, you put energy and time into it. Some of you with your hobbies, like we, we, we got hobbies that we just kind of, we, we keep going and we find ways to, to hone our skills and then we add tools to help us get better at this and we keep going and keep going and keep going. Why? Because we find value in it. We have got to see value in resurrection and recognize that training starts today. We can live in light of resurrection today. We can, we can serve and give and move for a purpose. Life only makes sense when we live this way. It really does. If you think about it, there's, it, it makes all the difficulty and all the labor not in vain. Every difficulty you experience, all the struggles as you walk through the sanctification journey, the only way it makes sense is if there's a resurrection body. At some point, we won't have to, to battle that anymore. It will be won completely. Hebrews 11 talks about but all, the, all the people of faith, right? Everything they did. Really this said, what would, what would not make sense is the godly sacrifice of those who by faith, they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, they obtained promises, they shut the mouth of lions, they quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, they wandered in the desert, in the mountains and caves and holes in the ground. None of that would make sense except for what Hebrews 11.35 says. Why? If it weren't for their hope that they might obtain a better resurrection. This is what it means to live. It would have all been futile and empty and pointless, which honestly, guys, your life, your desire to serve, the people that are up here playing music, if, if, if we lose sight of resurrection, it's kind of pointless. So pointless that even Jesus, who we are supposed to model ourselves, he looked to the resurrection. Look what Hebrews 12 says about Jesus. What, what did he do? For the joy that was set before him. Well, what joy was set before him? He endured the cross, despised the shame. What was the joy? That it didn't win. That he resurrected. You and I are going to be resurrected into a new heaven and a new earth. This changes the way we live our lives today. Can we not go to college and plan for the future? Of course not. But we do it in light of the fact that we are a part of a kingdom that is not of this world. And so we look different, we, we talk differently, we act differently. Not to isolate people from us, but to show them who it is and that we serve and live for. So they can look at the way we live and go, I want to live with that hope. I don't want to be afraid of death anymore. I don't want to find all this purpose. I don't want to give this money and serve and do all these things when it just is going to nothing. No, we, we live for hope, guys. The application is that the resurrection, as our Messiah has fulfilled what only he could do as a fully human, fully God person, completely unified one of God in the Trinity, as he is our first fruits, we now get to live 
as the harvest that's coming. We get to serve. We get to go out and, and preach the good news to our friends and family that don't have the hope of resurrection. We get to show people how futile it is, how pointless it is to live apart from resurrection. How pointless life is to just live a good life and just do what you can and then die and be buried. That's just, it's just a pointless life then. Guys, this, this adds validity to everything that we do in our lives. Are you in an extremely difficult spot? I mean like just excruciatingly painful. Whether it's because of sin that has come at you or your own sins or just because it's this broken world, like you just are experiencing hardship after hardship after hardship. Well, do not grow weary because we have a hope that is far beyond this vapor of a life that we're walking in right now. You and I have a hope that makes this life have purpose and meaning. It makes everything we do have purpose and meaning. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna worship. As, as we do that, I wanna, I wanna challenge you to not just stand up and sing as, as kind of what you're supposed to do, right? This is what we do because this is the, the tradition and the rhythm that we're in. I wanna encourage you to stand up and sing as someone who is going to be able to sing standing side by side Abraham and David and Jesus in the resurrection, walking and tilling gardens and planting vineyards with them. Sing. Sing as someone that knows that they have a hope that long outlasts the, the, the sadness of the body that's deteriorating. Sing as someone that knows that you're not gonna be only clothed in the, in, the, in the perishable, but will be clothed in the imperishable. Sing as someone that has a hope, guys. No matter how bleak or dark or difficult or how good this world gets, nothing compares to the value of the new heavens and the new earth where we walk and every single one of us get along perfectly. There is no back thoughts. There is no insecurities. We are walking and fully known and we fully know God like he fully knows us. Seeing like that's what you belong to. A kingdom that supersedes all other kingdoms on this earth. Seeing like people that have a hope. If you're here today and you don't have that hope, oh man, I want this for you. I want this so badly for you, but it doesn't work for me to want it for you and it doesn't work for you to just kind of go through the motions here. It's something that you have to sub submit yourself to. Same way that Jesus submitted himself to God. Submit yourself to him. If you are struggling or you have questions or you want prayer, this back room over here is a prayer room. It's always available to get prayer and to walk through things. But I encourage you guys, stand. Sing, kneel, sing, bow, sing whatever you need to do, but sing not as a person that has a voice that's somewhat tone deaf or pitchy, but as a perfect that will, as a person that will have an imperishable body. And one day we'll be able to sing in a perfect harmony with a choir of angels and everyone else standing there drinking. I don't know if you can drink coffee. We'll talk about that next week, right? Drinking coffee with Jesus. I don't know if we even need it, right? Where everything is perfect. And that's what we're going to if that's what we're going to, then everything that's good in this world doesn't mean that we get rid of it, but we recognize it has a place that is well underneath the value of the kingdom of God. And no matter how hard life gets, we know that this life is just a vapor and we have an eternity of an imperishable body where all things are back to the way it was supposed to be because of our Messiah King who is a priest under the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your willingness to Save us, God. Your scriptures are so alive and active. I pray that every single one of us would be hungry for your word, God. 
And we would just open up and the words would jump off of the pages and not just put knowledge in our heads, but just transform our hearts, God. God, I pray for the individuals that are here that are just dealing with the hopelessness of this bleak and broken world and the sinfulness of their choices, the sinfulness of other choices. God, I pray that you would help them to see that there's a hope beyond this life. They don't need to escape this life. They can, they can face it head on because you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. You promised to walk with us. You have given your spirit that literally resurrected Jesus in bodily form out of the grave and that same spirit lives in us and has given us ways to live submitted to your kingdom rule. God, for the individuals that are here that don't know you, God, I pray that you just wreak havoc with their hearts. Break them down, break the pride, break the fear, whatever's in the way, God, just, just draw them to you. You already are, they're here for a reason. Help them to make that step of submission to you, God. Help them to fall under your authority. And God, for the believers that are here today that have lost sight of your resurrection, that we've lived as if we should just be eating, drinking, merry, and live as if there is no tomorrow, God, forgive us for that. Forgive us for, for trying to find value in the things of this world instead of you. And God, I pray, I pray that, that we wouldn't have to live this vapor of a life any longer, that today you would come in victory and we'd watch every knee bow before you as the king that you are. We pray this in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.